great. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 today. Uh, I was just thinking about this, actually, um, in between services. Last year, the first sermon I preached was the last sermon in the series on Acts, and uh, I'm preaching the last sermon in the series on Nehemiah. Maybe that I'm the cleanup guy, I guess. Is that, I'm the cleanup hitter. Right. No, I don't think so. Um, but it is uh, a joy to be preaching today uh, in, in opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the Bible that's in front of you in one of the seats or on the back is a gift for you from Jacobswell Church. Please take that home and, and uh, you can write your name in the front of it and keep it. Um, there are some page numbers here if you're interested uh, in the red Bible, which is the ones that you'll see in the seats. Those are page uh, 408. Large print blue Bible, 480, which are on the back, uh, it's tables, and then the children's Bible, 525. And in your device, good luck. I don't know how to get there. But we're going to start right into Nehemiah 13. I'm going to be reading uh, the entire chapter here, verses 1 to 31. This is God's word. On that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachor, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, 
and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was uh, or was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though the grass withers, and the flowers fade, your word will last forever. Lord, we need your help today, help to understand. We need the power of your spirit to illuminate and open our hearts, soften our hearts, Lord, to your truth and your goodness. Lord, please help me to speak gospel truth with with power and clarity. 
Please help the meditations of all of our hearts that they might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in the name of Jesus and for the sake of the glory of his kingdom. Amen. And then something went bump. How that bump made us jump. We looked and we saw him step in on the mats. We looked and we saw him, the cat in the hat. And he said to us, why do you sit there like that? I know it is wet and the sun is not sunny, but we can have lots of good fun that is funny. I know some good games that we could play, said the cat. I know some new tricks, said the cat in the hat. A lot of good tricks. I will show them to you. Your mother will not mind at all if I do. Then Sally and I did not know what to say. Our mother was out of the house for the day. But our fish said, no, no, make that cat go away. Tell the cat in the hat you do not want to play. He should not be here. He should not be about. He should not be here while your mother is out. Now, now, have no fear. Have no fear, said the cat. My tricks are not bad, said the cat in the hat. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis writes this. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, one that is soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See the children, while their mother was out, opened the door. And who should enter but the cat in the hat who slowly and steadily, one trick after another until he's balancing half the house on top of him, makes a mess of everything. At first the children are watching and then they are participating in his tricks. Although if you look at the illustrations, their faces are always a little bit confused. Should we be liking this or not? Though they had multiple warnings from the fish, rather than confronting the troublemaker, they compromised. You see, in Nehemiah 13, we see something very similar taking place. A people who, while their mother, you might say, Nehemiah, was out, opened the door to compromise and trouble. You see, they had experienced revival. They had experienced covenant renewal. They had committed themselves to God. They had been the recipients of God's mercy and grace, recipients of, of his restoring power. They were back from exile in Jerusalem. And even though all of these things had taken place, they lost their staying power and returned to old habits. You see, friends, the truth is, we are like them, and as the song says, we are prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are prone to compromise. It's not something new. It's the same old problem that's plagued mankind since the first man and first woman walked the face of the earth and gave in to the serpent's temptation. 
How does our passage speak to this issue of compromise? Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner uh, writes about Nehemiah 13, and, and his summary is fantastic, and so I'm going to read it for you. He says this, If on Nehemiah's first visit he had been a whirlwind, on his second he was all fire and earthquake to a city that had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise with the surrounding world. He goes on to say this, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. See, the truth is this, friends, that today's compromise leads to tomorrow's destruction. The compromise of today leads to the destruction tomorrow. Well, let's look at the text and see how God speaks to us. Just a few introductory uh, statements I'll make. is one, One's about chronology. Uh, there's, there's some interesting things with the chronology here. Uh, it, it, you may not know when this is happening, and so I'll say this. If we go back, Nehemiah first came uh, to Jerusalem as the governor and to, to rebuild you know, the walls in 445 B.C. And according to verse 6, after serving a 12-year term, it says in the year uh, the 36th or 32nd, year of King Artaxerxes' reign, that's 433. So after 12 years, Nehemiah went back to Babylon. And then it says in verse 6, after some time, Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to serve a second term. We don't know how long it was. But the first three verses are speaking in this time in between when Nehemiah left the first time and before he came back the second time. Okay? Now, there's some other things that I want to point out here, some questions you might have, maybe puzzling questions when you first read through this. And, and here they are. The first is this. Does this passage justify the removal of immigrants? Does it justify whether they're legal or not? Because we see there's this law they read, and then they separate. It says, all those of foreign descent. So is this justifying some sort of uh, removal? The second question you might have on your mind is, Nehemiah is, is I mean, he, he really go, gets kind of crazy. I mean, he's pulling hair, he's beating, he's chasing, he's throwing things. Is, is, is his reaction and response, is it justified? Is it reasonable? The last thing, that, that question that you might have or one that I had that, that I'm going to bring up is these prayers that he prays. Is, is this some sort, is he just this proud, like, remember me, oh God? Look at all the stuff I've done. Is he, you know, give me a pat on the back, people. What's going on there? Something that I want us to think about for a moment is, is this. What's at stake? What's at stake here? What, what in Nehemiah's mind and, and, and even in the mind of us as, as the reader today, what, what is at stake? If, if you remember back to when we preached about the purpose of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls, do you remember what it was? It was for the glory of God. It was that the glory of God would be made known both in Jerusalem and also unto the ends of the earth. That the glory of God would extend out to the nations. So the glory of God's name is at stake. Both today and, and then as well as tomorrow, which is our here and now. What else is at stake is the worship of God. True and pure worship of God. And a third thing at stake is the identity of God's people. Are these people really set apart for God or not? Are we really set apart for God or not? 
So here's, here's uh, the, the roadmap, you might say, that we're going to look at. We're going to look at, and these are headings you have in your bulletin, an old law, the same old problems, and brand new mercies. And hopefully I'll answer some of these questions. Verse 1, an old law. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. In the hearing of the people. On that day, now, now some translators translate this at that time, and that's to remove confusion because just before this, in verse 44 of chapter 12, it starts out on that day, and it's the day that they dedicated the, the temple, and they dedicated the walls, and, and all that stuff was happening. And there was this big, grand, awesome worship service. I heard about that last week from Pastor Dan. At that time, or on that day in verse 1 of 13, is actually talking about a much later time. It's not the same day. What happens? They read from the book of Moses, it says, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So what is this? Now, you may remember uh, when the people were reading in the book of Moses earlier that I referenced that they were reading from Deuteronomy. Here we find again a quote directly taken from Deuteronomy 23 where there is this law given. And this is what the law says, that they are not to uh, have Ammonites or Moabites enter the assembly. Now, what is this referencing? There's a, the name Balaam. Well, if you want to go further into the rabbit hole with me, this is going back to Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Everyone remember that story? You might have heard it as a kid about the talking donkey in the Bible. That's Balaam. Balaam rode on a donkey that talked to him. It was God speaking through the donkey. This is where it came out of. Now, what happened in this story? Well, in short, the Israelites were coming into the land, and the Moabite king, Balak, didn't want them to come into the land. He wanted to curse them. So he hired Balaam, who didn't worship God. Balaam, was he was a he worshiped some other gods. And he said, hey, I want you to curse the Israelites for me. And if you read Numbers 22, 23, and 24, what you find is, besides a talking donkey, you, you find that each time, there's three times, Balaam goes to the Lord and he says, I have to tell you, he says to Balak, I have to tell you, whatever God tells me is what I'm going to say. Very interesting because this guy, is, he's not a worshiper of God. But he says, whatever God tells me, I'm going to have to say. And three times he goes to God, and three times God says to Balaam, don't curse my people, bless them. So he comes back, and he stands before Balak and all these, you know, his whole army, and he says, blessings upon Israel. And Balak goes, what? Said, go back again. So three times he comes back again. So that's the reference here. The Moabites hired Balaam to bring a curse against Israel, verse 2, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so because of this, because of that whole scene that happened in Numbers, God gave a law in Deuteronomy telling the Israelites, separate from those Moabites, Ammonites, those of foreign descent from your assemblies when you gather together to worship. Separate. Now, as a side note, if you really want to dive deep, interestingly, Balaam and Balak are referenced in Revelation 2 where Jesus is speaking to a church that is compromised. Kind of interesting. Anyway, I'll leave it there. You can go into deeper study for yourself. Revelation 2, 14 and 15. 
Verse 3, so how do they respond? They hear this law, they're, remind, they're reminded of this story of, of Balaam, Balak, this whole thing, talking donkeys, you know, curses that turn into blessings. As soon as the people, verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now your first thought is, wait a minute, they're just kicking out all the foreigners? They're kicking out anyone who wasn't born, uh, you know, a Jew or born an Israelite? Maybe you, you might think that I'm first reading, and that's okay. But keep in mind that if you go back through, there are time and time again where there are Gentiles or non-Jews who are brought into the fold, brought into the fellowship, and received as part of God's people. For instance, think of King David's grandmother. Remember her name, Ruth? She was a Moabite. And yet she is even listed in Matthew as in the genealogy of Christ. So what this is speaking about is not just anyone who was born uh, who is not born Jewish. This is speaking about anyone who's not a convert. Anybody who doesn't worship the one true God was told to leave the assembly. Those who are still in their native capacity, as one commentator said it like that. Those who are still outwardly worshiping pagan idols were told, you've got to leave our assembly when we gather, which makes sense because you're not worshiping our God. Now, what's the point here? The other day, my wife and I were uh, eating blueberries, and our kids too. We love blue. You guys like blueberries? We love blueberries. And we were opening it up, and I remember my wife saying to my kids, watch out for those ones that have some, I don't know, fur, white stuff on them. The moldy ones. Watch out for the moldy ones. Now, when you find a, a, a container of blueberries and there's some mold on some of them, I looked this up actually because I was curious. You can actually still eat the other blueberries. You don't have to throw the whole batch out. I think bread might be different, but anyway, that's another story. But what is it telling you, though? What's the sign of mold on some of the blueberries? That eventually, all the blueberries are going to go bad, so you better start eating. That, that's, that's the way I take it. I just say, okay, we're just going to eat them all right now. You can do what you want. But what it is, it's an early sign of more mold to come. What's happening in verses 1 through 3, which is why I believe Nehemiah put this in right here, is he's trying to say, look, this is an early sign in this period between when Nehemiah is gone of compromise. It's an early sign of compromise. At least in this case, the people confront the compromise with God's word, and they obey. However, as we keep reading, we'll see that this is not the case when Nehemiah comes back. You ever see the, the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? Yeah, some of you some of you are young. If you're younger here, maybe ask your parents for permission. I'm not sure if it's appropriate. But what happens is Bill Murray, I don't even remember the name of his character, he, he keeps reliving the same day over and over and over again. I don't know how many times. And he lives the same day over and over again, faces all the same troubles. He's trying to win the heart of this woman over and over again. And yet something happens each day as he relives the same exact day. He gets a little smarter. He gets a little wiser. He, 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 you know, he, it's like he's even, he can sort of tell what's going to happen because he's lived it so many times. He even sets to learning the piano. He becomes a concert pianist, you know, and then he's like just going, going crazy. Must have been a lot of days that he relived it. Sadly... With Israel, when they face the same challenges and troubles, they don't seem to be learning from their mistakes the way Bill Murray did. I mean, we're just not seeing them getting a little better here. In fact, we're seeing some, some, some tough things happening. Nehemiah comes back, and what he finds is four discoveries, four same old problems 
that Israel has been facing really since the beginning of time. What are these four discoveries, these same old problems? The first one is this. And what what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through and look at these discoveries. And then we're going to come back and look at how does Nehemiah respond to what he discovers. The first discovery is this. It's in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. That is a small warehouse within the, uh, this is within the courts of the temple, okay? And he put him in this chamber where they used to put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, it says in verse 5. What's happening here? Eliashib put Tobiah into the space where the people are supposed to bring in their tithes and where the Levites are supposed to conduct the, the proper worship of God. This is the the space where the worship, the true worship of God is to be conducted. And Tobiah moves right in and says, I'm kicking all this stuff out. And you'll see in a minute, it even has other effects. And I'm taking up residence here. So the first discovery Nehemiah makes is that true worship has been compromised. You can't have true worship when there's not a space to do it. In fact, Tobiah is an Ammonite. Remember we just read, the Ammonites aren't even supposed to be in the assembly of God. Those who don't worship God aren't supposed to be in the assembly. And here he is right in the house of God. The center of influence in Jerusalem. So true worship has been compromised. Verse 10, Nehemiah discovers a second thing. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. That's, that's the tithe, what we sometimes call the tithe. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work, that is the work of the, the ministry, the work of the temple, uh, guarding the temple, uh, you know, the, making the sacrifices, leading the people in song. What did they do? It says in verse 10, they fled to his field. Nehemiah discovers that the people are no longer bringing their resources in and honoring God with their resources. They're not tithing. They're not giving unto the work of the ministry. And what's happened? Compromise the Levites. They can't feed their families now. So what do they do? They go out to the field to work. Nehemiah discovers a third thing. Verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And he goes on and describes all of this commerce, all of these exchanges going on. He sees people bringing in wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads in which they they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Didn't they just talk just a couple chapters ago about honoring the Lord with the Sabbath? What's more, verse 16, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. So now we're even having those who don't worship God coming into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, on this Saturday, and and, and doing all of this. What is this discovery? The people have compromised their their Sabbath. They, They are not using their time in a way that honors God. The Sabbath is given as a way for us to honor God with our time, to set apart time for the Lord. And here they are not doing that. They've compromised. Fourth discovery. This keeps going. I mean, this this is crazy. Fourth discovery, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
or Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. What's happening? Nehemiah discovers that the people who are to marry in the Lord or marry uh, those who both worship God, so husband and wife who both worship God are to marry. That's what they committed themselves to. That's what God's law and the word talks about. They're no longer doing this. They've compromised this. They are no longer being faithful in honoring God with their relationships. Now, why are these issues so significant? We have true worship compromised. We have use of resources compromised. We have use of time compromised. We have use of of relationships compromised. Why is this so significant? My my wife and I and my kids, we're in the process of moving right now. And um, I think that you can always tell when someone is moving. At least I feel like people can all tell I'm moving because... When people are moving, they just, they kind of look tired and disheveled. You got boxes everywhere. You know, if you were on 9th Street last Saturday, you would have seen this train going constantly down, up and down 9th Street, me driving a truck and a couple other friends driving trucks up and down 9th. You could tell we were moving. We had all the signs of moving, boxes, people everywhere, sweat, smelliness. Last night, I said to my wife, I'm not sure the last time I showered. She said, I'm not sure I remember either when I showered last. There's all these identifiers. Here's the point I'm trying to make with this silly illustration. There's all these identifiers about where someone is in life, what they're doing in life. There's identifiers. The the significance of these things is, is this. How is the world to know God? How is the world to know his work? How is the world to know his people? It's by the way that we live. It's by the way that we uphold what he asks us to do. It's how we set ourselves apart. And what we see in these four issues, worship and resources and time and uh, and relationships, when we don't honor God in these four areas, we are not setting ourselves apart from the world. There is an erosion of our identity. You see what happens when worship is, true worship is compromised, it leads to no worship. When the use of resources is, is not generous in, 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 uh, in honoring to the Lord, when it's compromised, there's no ministry of the word. When we are not honoring God with our time, when we compromise what the Lord teaches us about the Sabbath, it leads to no rest, no separation. When we are not honoring God in our relationships, when we compromise that, it leads to a lack of a godly heritage. The children can't even speak the language of God because they're not hearing it from their parents. We see, friends, today's compromise leads to tomorrow's destruction. These same compromises are what got them into the situation in the first place. This may help us in understanding why Nehemiah responds in the way he does to these compromises. We're going to go through and look at his response, but I'm summarizing it with with these three, uh, for my alliteration friends, three Ps. Okay, ready, Mike? Presence, prosecution, and prayer. This is how Nehemiah responds. Presence, prosecution, and prayer. Verse 7 
After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. Nehemiah's heart was still with his people in Jerusalem. He, he went back to the Persian king because he was asked to. And he went back for some time and he finally gets permission to go back to Jerusalem. He comes and he is present among his people because that's where he belongs. He wants to be with them. He wants to encourage them and clearly he wants to hold them accountable. He is present with them. He goes back and when he finds everything he finds, he goes into this just prosecution. This process of just, and I would even say merciful, prosecution. I went through yesterday and circled all of these things that he did, and there's, there's a whole list of them. I'm just going to run through them quickly here. It, it's, he, he goes nuts. We'll just say, Nehemiah went nuts. Let's just say it like that. You ready? Verse 8, he threw out Tobias' furniture. Verse 9, oh, I, I mean, just picture this. He's walking in there. He says, all right, out of here. And you, you, by the way, re, re, does that remind you of anybody else who went in and cleansed the temple? Jesus did the same exact thing. Same exact thing. He throws out Tobias' furniture. He gives orders to cleanse and restore the chambers. Verse 11, he confronts the officials uh, about why, hey, why aren't, we, why aren't we collecting the tithe? Then he appoints treasurers. Then he confronts nobles about the Sabbath. Then he gives orders to observe the Sabbath. Then he warns the merchants and sailors. I love that part. If you guys, if you guys camp out there another night, I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm coming for you. Then he commands the Levites to purify themselves and set up guard around Jerusalem. Verse 25, maybe, maybe a difficult passage for some, or maybe if, if you really, you know, you, you like, you're a vengeance kind of person, you struggle with that. Maybe verse 25 was, you know, you're like, yes! And he's speaking to these men who, who had married women who don't worship God. It says, I confronted them. I cursed them. Now, this is not a curse like we would think today. This is a religious curse, okay? So don't think of cursing like you would today. This is different than that. Confronted them, cursed them, and then it escalates. I beat them and pulled out their hair. Now, the, the reference pulling out the hair is actually meaning, it's a reference. Isaiah 50 talks about this when the Lord speaks of discipline, and it speaks about how he pulls out the hair of our beard. So it's a discipline of God, actually. Interestingly enough, Isaiah 50, verse 6, if you want to look it up. Then the last thing is um, he, chase, he, he physically chases away uh, the son, uh, one of the sons of Jodiah who, who married Sanballat's daughter. <laughs> just like, I mean, can you just see Nehemiah? He's just chasing the guy down the street. Get out of here. You don't love the God. You don't love God. Get away. Now, the, the question that, that, that you might be thinking with, with this prosecution is, is this just? Is this reasonable? Is this okay that Nehemiah responded like this? And I thought a lot about this and read through, read some commentaries, and my answer is yes. My answer is yes for a couple of reasons, but I have a caveat. And the caveat, I'll say first so you don't miss it, the caveat is this isn't how we are supposed to enact justice today. We have governments for that, for all the civil stuff, and within the church we have elders who enact church discipline. But in this case, Nehemiah was perfectly in his right to do this for two reasons. The first is that he was acting under the authority of the Persian king to uphold the laws of the land. And the Persian king had said, go back to Jerusalem and establish your religion. Part of 
the Jewish religion gave many, many instructions on how do you respond to law-breaking. Usually it was corporal punishment of some kind, some sort of physical punishment or physical holding accountable. So he was acting under the authority of the Persian king. The second one is he was acting under the authority of God. In that time, in, in, in this system, God placed men in charge to enact justice. And so, here he is, doing that. Of course, you think about in the New Testament, Jesus did a little temple cleaning himself. You even think about Peter uh, in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira come in after they lied about selling and giving their, their, uh, their you know, all that they earned from what they sold, their land. What happens? They're struck dead. Corporal punishment. Now again, it's not the way we are to act. We have systems in place. But prosecution, just upholding of God's law and prosecuting those who are lawbreakers. The third response we see is that Nehemiah prays. Now, when you first read this, remember me prayer, and he, he, he has four of these. Three of them are remembering really him kind of praying for, uh, for his prayer, and then one of them, he's actually cursing um, these, these wrongdoers, these evildoers. That's verse 29. In each of these cases, though, he begins by saying, remember me, oh my God. Now, before we start thinking that he's giving this, like, pat me on the back, remember me, look what I did. That's not what he's saying. In the Bible, when we see this phrase, remember, it's actually a calling to mind that God is our help, that God regards us. Remember the thief on the cross? Someone pointed this out to me after the first service. I think it's great. The thief on the cross, what does he say to Jesus? Remember me. Regard me. It is asking for God to regard us, to bring help. Remember God. Remember. Bring help. Remember me. When you're ordering your universe, remember me. Help me. Help us. The other part of this prayer, besides asking God for help in this remembering, it's also a prayer that springs from a love for God and his ways. Look at what we've, remember me, oh, oh my God, for good. Remember these things that I've done because you are worthy. So Nehemiah is present. Nehemiah brings prosecution. And Nehemiah prays. And then he summarizes uh, his entire account, not just of Nehemiah 13, but it's the very last words that he writes about the entire book. Now, when you read this entire book and you think, okay, what are the things Nehemiah is going to bring out at the very end to sort of say, this is the capstone? If you were like Julius Caesar, you might say, I, I came, I saw, I conquered. You know, remember his famous words? Nehemiah might say, I came, I built, and I conquered. You know, that's not what he says. He says instead in verse 30, I cleansed, I established, and I provided. I cleansed, I established, I provided. And the way he did that was through being present, bringing prosecution, and praying. And the question that we have at this point is, well, what happens when Nehemiah dies? What happens when, if he goes away again? Will the cat in the hat come back with his tricks and lead the people into more compromise? 
it seems that Israel's staying power, their power to remain faithful to God, to, to live uncompromising lives, is dependent upon Nehemiah, doesn't it, at this time? Dependent upon someone else. See, the trouble with this, friends, as we're seeing in this case, is that if our staying power, our power to live uncompromising lives, is dependent upon a, a, a man, a woman, a, a, an institution or an organization that's made by men, then what happens when that man, woman, or institution crumbles? And they will. And they do. And when they crumble, our staying power is going to go away if that's what we're basing, if that's our motivation. You see, what we're seeing here is that when staying power crumbles... Compromise begins, and as we've seen, today's compromise leads to tomorrow's destruction. So what do we do? Do we live in fear? Are there any new mercies available to us? There's three things I'll say here as we close. The first is this. First, let's acknowledge our need. Let's acknowledge that we are dependent creatures who are prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are not independent. That is a lie. We are dependent creatures. We need someone else in order to keep on living. We are dependent creatures. We need the faithful presence and just prosecution and humble prayer of somebody. We do. The second thing is let's acknowledge our misplaced affections. We, we too often look to created things, even good things, for our motivation, for our staying power to live rightly. And as we've seen, if, if this created thing goes away, dies, crumbles, then our staying power motivation goes away too. You see, friends, we must look somewhere other than this earth, other than created things, other than creatures for staying power, for motivation. And there's only one place that we can look to find eternal, lasting, staying power and motivation that will never crumble, never fail, and that is to Christ. You see, just like Nehemiah was present and brought prosecution and prayed, Christ does the same thing, but so much more. Nehemiah couldn't be physically present all the time. Jesus is faithfully present all the time by his word, by his spirit. Nehemiah brought just prosecution. Jesus provides just prosecution. And here's the wonderful, amazing thing, guys. He takes it upon himself. He bears the punishment that we deserve. He is prosecuted according to our sins. And in exchange, we are offered life, we are offered salvation, we are welcomed into the assembly. No longer as foreigners, you might say. No longer as those who don't worship, we're welcomed in. And it's only Jesus who continually prays for us, for our help. It says in Hebrews 7 that he always lives to make intercession for us. See, Jesus is present, Jesus is prosecuted, and Jesus prays to give us help. You see, each day we can find brand new mercies for our same old compromising problems. They're found in Jesus. They're found in him alone. 
You see, he alone can completely cleanse us from sin and brokenness. He alone can eternally establish our drifting feet and our compromising hearts. He alone can perfectly provide for our greatest and deepest needs, namely fellowship with God, eternal and lasting joy, complete satisfaction. Won't you come to him? Rest in him. You see, you may wander, you may leave the God you love, but take heart. He never leaves you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we are mindful that it's, it's true, our confession is we are prone to wander, prone to compromise, prone to leave you. And though we are at times faithless, you remain faithful. Lord, I pray that this truth would motivate us to live lives that are uncompromising, set apart for you in how we worship and how we use our resources, how we use our time and our relationships, Lord. Lord, we thank you that your grace abounds over wayward people like us. That though we are deserving of being chased away and beaten and hair pulled out and warned, that in your abundant grace and mercy, when you see us, you see Jesus. And you see the sacrifice that he made for all those who trust in him. Thank you. Remember us, O oh God. Help us for our good and for your glory.